Hello friends, welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. All right, my friends. Welcome back. So, let's bring ourselves up to speed. The last couple weeks have been basing the Dharma talks on a other Dharma talk by Gil Fronstel. And it came my way that that Dharma talk was transcribed by a student and they had emailed it to me. So I had read it and thought it was really great for a start to this new year because the title of that Dharma talk was Skillfully Evaluating Practice, How to Skillfully Evaluate Practice. And then Gil lists several paragraphs where there's these different aspects of our practice that he encourages us to evaluate. So I thought that would be a great start to the year. So last week we were talking about evaluating motivation what our motivation is to practice. And if you know my version of the teachings at all, you know that's a big one for me. Knowing what we're practicing, why we're practicing, and having some focus there on some aspirational goals with our practice to keep us from just kind of floating through, right? To give us some structure, to give us some support, and to be able to discern what our commitment is as we move through. Because it's easy to get lost in the practice. There's so many practices and it's very easy to get waylaid and get um, get to this point where your practice sort of plateaus and you don't even realize it simply because we haven't checked back into wise views and we haven't checked back into wise aspiration and we haven't been able to reground ourselves in wise intention. So I think it's a great way of doing it, looking at motivation. And this week, Gil talks about this encouragement of understanding yourself. Checking in with understanding yourself. So I'm going to read this paragraph to you, and then I'm going to make some commentary on it. I thought this was kind of cool. So this is what he says. There's always more room for motivation, but does your aspiration match who you are? You can read a book feeling convinced that you should do A, B, and C, but it may not suit your life at this time. Or maybe what your teacher is telling you is not a fit. For instance, If we should be focusing on our personal ethics, it may not be appropriate to spend a lot of time with a specific teaching that emphasizes ultimate liberation. Do you know how you learn best? Some people learn best by reading, others by listening, others by watching, and others by doing. Some people do best when there is discipline and structure. Others learn best through playfulness, self-direction, or intuitive experimentation. Some people find reading and studying helpful, others may not. Extroverts might find it helpful to discuss their meditation with friends. Introverts may find their... (laughs) I just... (laughs) This is totally me, so I thought... (laughs) I had to laugh, sorry. (laughs) The extroverts might find it helpful to discuss their meditation with friends, while introverts might find they work best when they have quiet time for personal reflection. By knowing yourself in these ways, it might be possible to find an approach to meditation that suits you. Since it is important not to tailor a meditation practice around personal preferences and attachments, it can be useful to ask a meditation teacher or another meditation practitioner for feedback about your approach to the practice. 
So checking in with yourself. I like this line where he says, does your aspiration match who you are? Does your aspiration match who you are? And are the practices that you're doing this time in your life suiting your life, suiting your lifestyle, suiting the dukkha that's arising, suiting your capacity, perhaps suiting your limitations? So I'm going to just push into this idea a little bit and offer some feedback that sparked my attention after reading this a few times. One of the things I really like about this orientation towards evaluating yourself as part of the practice comes from the idea that I always like to share, which is I find it inspiring that we're all on the same path, right? That there's this eightfold path and there's steps and there's tools and we're all sitting together and in quiet, right? And we're doing the same techniques, essentially, or some version of the same technique. But what I also find really cool is that even though we're following in the Buddha's footsteps, each one of us, it's, it's our feet or your feet that are actually walking the path. And I find that to be really cool. It's this idea that there's this universal that we're all engaged in, but the individuality, our lives have to arrive at the Dharma, right? The Dharma's there, but our personality is still at play, right? Our practice is still very personal. The part of the heart and mind that lets go of greed, hatred, and delusion is going to be different for every single one of us. And so while we're all walking together on the path, we all have our own individual cravings, our own delusions, our own hatred, our own ill will, and it's going to be different for every single person. And so I like this idea that Gil is saying to customize the practice and really ask yourself, is the practice suiting you? Does it feel like it really suits you at this point in your life, how you're practicing and what you're practicing? I, I, when I read that, I was reminded of, I was on a meditation retreat once and I was managing, I was the manager of a meditation center um, for a particular set of retreats. And one of the things that we were asked to do by the Dharma teachers was we would sit up in the front of the room and then every so often we would be asked to kind of break our meditation and just open our eyes and kind of just look around the room just to make sure everyone was okay, that people were just meditating and everyone looked like they were doing okay. There wasn't anything going on that we needed to tend to or offer help to folks. So throughout the day, you'd be meditating and then the managers would just kind of open their eyes and kind of look around the room just to make sure everyone was doing all right. I did this one time and I realized that meditation retreats don't really exist that you have all these people in a room, every single person is actually on their own retreat. It's completely different for every person. The only thing that's shared <laughs> is the Dharma hall and the, you know, we eat in the same hall, we or we eat in the same, you know, kitchens and stuff, the dining area, and we sit in the hall together. But where is the meditation retreat? Like every single person has a completely different experience of going on retreat. And so it, it just really struck me how personal the path was that you could have 80 people in a room, all quote unquote on retreat. And though they're together in the Dharma practice, each person is on a completely unique experience, right? A completely unique experience. So that was really moving to me. And it really reminded me of this beauty between sort of the individual and the collective when it comes to the Dharma. And because of that, reminding ourselves that our path is our own, right? And we're going to have to customize it and be creative and be innovative with our practice to make sure it suits us, as Gil says. For me, this brings up uh, <laughs> brings up the point of how much the human mind likes to compare itself to others, 
right? And the human heart loves to look around because we're social creatures and we look around to see what other people are doing to get cues about what is safe and what is normative and what's allowed within a culture, or what's accepted in a culture. And, and it's easy to forget that that same thing happens within the context of our spiritual practice. On occasion, part of us can sort of look at the Dharma or look at someone else who's meditating and ask ourselves, am I doing as good of a job as this person over here? Am I having this experience? Like, that person seems really equanimous. Why am I not that equanimous? Like, like we have this habit of comparing our practices to everybody else while we're sitting trying to do, do the exact opposite. So I, that just came up for me when I was reading this, this paragraph today. And I, I noticed with myself, like, well, as both a student as a, and a teacher, and having been doing this for so many years now, like on occasion, I'll stumble upon some version of a practice that I've never seen before. Like I'll, I'll read some essay by some teacher and they describe some version of say walking meditation or some little twist on loving kindness. And sometimes my, my thought is, oh my gosh, I've never done that. Maybe I should have been doing that all this time. Like, I feel like I, I sort of got left behind or that I, I was doing my practice wrong and that technique would have gotten me enlightened sooner. And so there's that, there's that sense of like, oh man, all these years I could have been practicing that version of walking meditation. Then look where would I, I would have been in my practice. The mind loves to compare. And so when we think about owning our practice, right? Customizing and really having our practice suit us. We need to watch for those moments where we are looking at other people and comparing our practice to other practices and telling ourselves, I should be equanimous like that person is equanimous or that person did, you know, a month-long retreat and I've never done a month-long retreat or this person is talking about jhana and I don't know how to do that or, you know, with me it's all... <laughs> It's often the loving kindness part where we talk about loving kindness and I'm like, man, I feel like I should be more loving. I feel like it should be warmer and softer and just like illuminated all the time. So it's just when you're trying to find what suits you for your practice. I love the way that Gil says, understand yourself. Not don't compare yourself to others, but understand you. What really what does your heart need, right? At this point in your practice. What practices are really suited to you? at this point in your life or with the particular dukkha that's coming up for you. So this focus on, on you, right? What works for you? I think this is really important. I always have to remind myself that a skillful effort is a part of the path because human beings tend to continually be off balance. We're constantly course correcting. We're constantly course correcting. We make decisions and then some work out and some don't work out. And then we course correct and we make other decisions and we try new things in our life. And then that works. So we want more of this and less of something else. And the, a mind that is being pushed and pulled by a continuous need to course correct is going to be a mind that's going to be off balance quite a bit of the time. And if you think about just walking right? Just walking to your car or walking from your car to the store or um, just walking into another room and picking up something. If you think of all the nuances of how the body has to course correct its balance and its movement just to move through space and time, we have these hearts and minds that are constantly course correcting, constantly trying to find the sense of stability in a completely unstable world. 
And this brings itself, or this, uh, because of this, we see that in the practice, no matter where we are in the Dharma, skillful effort is always at play. We always have to check back in with ourselves and ask, in this moment, what is the most skillful thing? Because this moment is its own moment, right? In this moment, something different might need to arise in your practice because there's a constant moving back and forth, going a little bit too far to the left, going a little bit too far to the right, and we're constantly course correcting. And one of the things about practice that we tend to forget is that the way we approach practice is energized by our baggage, right? I'm going to use the term baggage here. So the way we approach our practice is energized by our hopes and our fears and our insecurities and our compassion and our kindness and our aspirations. And so when we say we're going to go practice the Dharma, there is a karmic inheritance that exists in our efforts. And this inheritance that comes from our past experience is going to frame what kind of practice we choose to do, how often we choose to do the practice. Our past experiences and our preferences and prejudices and uh, all the good and bad life experiences are going to impact what kind of practices we lean towards, right? Does our heart lean towards loving kindness or does it lean towards body scanning or is there some noble truth that you like more than others? So it's important to check in with ourselves because our efforts in practice, even if we've grounded ourselves in the highest aspiration that all beings be free and we've got our intentions lined up and we have our precepts kind of oriented, every time we step into practice, the practice is energized by all of our preferences, right? It's, it's, it's prejudiced by the hindrances. So how we choose to practice, where we choose to practice, all of that is part of the Dharma because the hindrances are present in that very energy. And I'll explain to you a little bit deeper about what I mean by this. Ram Das once said that when he looked at Western practitioners, for the first years of practice for Western practitioners, he said, no matter what the students thought they were working on in their practice, what they were really working on was healing from the inheritance of their spiritual upbringing and from their relationships with their parents. <laughs> and he said, no matter what we thought we were doing spiritually, there was this background thing that had to be worked out, right? That we bring to the practice and that he kept noticing that no matter what we think we're doing in the Dharma, there are things that we're working on because we bring all that to every moment, right? We, we don't just put the cushion on the ground and start from a clean slate and go from a clean slate to enlightenment. We go from all of our past experience, and if you are oriented towards a rebirth model, all of those previous lifetimes of experience, and that's where we're starting from. And so when Gil says, understand yourself, I'm going to, and Gil also says, does your aspiration match who you are. And so I'm going to take that a little step further. And I'm going to ask a question, which is when we check in with ourselves, I think it can be helpful to ask what self is showing up. Which self is showing up in this moment that is desiring to practice? 
Because oftentimes we put the cushion down, hop on the cushion, and we may have our aspiration and we may have our intention. And we may know that there's some suffering in our life. Oh, I'm stressed at work or I've got this thing I'm working on. So we may know those kind of superficial things. But asking ourselves who is showing up to practice in this moment can be really helpful. And let me give you some examples of what I mean by this and how it frames our practice. In the West, we say, know thyself, right? And it implies this essence, this solidity underneath that is being known. Where in the Dharma, we're, we're saying, wait, the self is arising and passing away. It's a different self every moment. So the know thyself is about knowing the whole selfing process that's occurring, right, in our practice. And this becomes more acute and more visible as we practice. But think of it in these terms. There are times when the, the self that shows up to practice is disciplined, courageous, clear of mind, open-hearted, and it sits on the cushion, and that's the self that shows up that day into your practice. And that self, when that self shows up, maybe we're sitting regularly and we're sitting for the amount of time that we want and we're going on retreats and this courageous, disciplined self that shows up with samadhi and clarity of vision, that self engages the Dharma in a particular way and desires particular practices that feel nourishing. But then sometimes the self that shows up is the kind of self that's insecure, self-doubting or like it's the I'm not good enough self that ends up pulling the cushion out and it's like okay that's the self that's showing up this morning to practice. Now that self may have a different orientation to how it meditates that day. We have all of these different habits that arise when we choose to do our practices. We have the excuse-making self and the disciplined self and the insecure self and then we have the self that gets anxious and burnt out and overwhelmed and how we show up in the moment to practice is a really important moment because what practice we choose moment to moment is going to depend on what self is showing up that morning or that day or when you're about to do something in your practice. When Gil said, know yourself, I thought, which self are you talking about? <laughs> which self? Because sometimes I'll wake up and the self that comes to practice is really confident. I'm like, oh, I got this, you know? Not only confident, there's, there's a self that shows up for me that's overly confident. <laughs> I have an arrogant self that shows up to the Dharma and says, I got this, like, I'm gonna be enlightened tomorrow. This is like, I got all my ducks in a row and everything's going good. That self may need a particular type of practice, right? It might desire a specific practice, but it might need maybe a different one. The reason I bring this up is that when we come to the cushion, knowing our aspiration and knowing what we're working on and understanding the tools is certainly a huge thing that I always invite people to do. And then I like that there's this other thing that Gil talks about, which is how do you learn, right? It's like, what kind of learner are you? When, you, when you're in the Dharma and you show up to practice, what are your needs? Is it a Dharma talk? Is it a book? Is it a community? Is it personal time? Is it connectivity or creativity? And allowing those questions to be asked allows us to watch and see what kind of dharma would be nourishing to quote unquote suit you in the moment. Some moments, certain type of dharma is gonna light up our hearts 
and really feel nourishing. And then other moments, certain type of Dharma doesn't suit us at all. It might, it might rub us the wrong way. In fact, like, do you ever start listening to a Dharma talk and you're like, Oh, not the right medicine, <laughs> not the right medicine right now. You ever come here and I open my mouth and you're like, Oh, we're talking about that again. <laughs> Happens to me all the time when I listen to other teachers talk. So I know. So when Gil said, know yourself, that's what came up for me was this reminder that we actually show up with different needs every time we practice. Every moment we're in the Dharma, there's a different different self that needs to be nurtured in a particular way. And if we invite the questioning of like, what might suit my heart right now as I get on the cushion? Wow, you can really customize the practice and really own the Dharma in that moment and give yourself an opportunity to practice what the heart really desires versus maybe a moment where the part of yourself shows up that's trying to prove something, right? Or the part of yourself that... Um, wants to show off that part of myself likes to come up on a cushion. It's like, oh, I could sit for a long time. I'm going to prove that I can. Who knows who's going to show up on the cushion moment to moment? There's that comparative part of ourself that sometimes we're showing up to do an activity. Let's take it, for example, outside of the Dharma. We show up to do an activity and the self that's showing up is the self that's still trying to impress our parents, right? It's the a self shows up that's still trying to prove something to ourselves or prove something to others. That very energy still arises on our meditation cushion, right? That energy still is making the decision on what I'm going to practice in the Dharma today or what am I going to lean into? So it's just a way of taking not self and taking this idea of suiting, right? Of getting to suit you and combining those together as an attitudinal reflection and an evaluation of your moment to moment practice. Now, if we take this a little more external, as Gil was saying, and ask ourselves, what is going on in my life right now that I should be taking into account when it comes to how I'm approaching my practice, how I'm choosing to practice? And oftentimes, it's I do this a lot, uh, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm the only one. Do you ever <laughs> set unreasonable expectations for yourself and then you don't follow through or can't succeed at the expectations and conveniently forget that you were the one that set them to be <laughs> to begin with. So with our practice, it's really easy to overshoot and to have high expectations of ourselves, of what we expect of ourselves as a Dharma person. Like I'm a meditator, therefore I should be doing this kind of practice in this kind of way. And looking at the reasonableness of our expectations can be really important. I'll give you a, a specific example. So uh, last year when I got sick from COVID, there was this frustration because so many months I was really, really tired. And the healthy thing to do was actually not to meditate, but, but go sleep. And so I'd sleep for several hours. But the expectation I had of myself was, but I should be medit I should be able to meditate through this. I should be. And what I wasn't doing was <clears throat> bringing equanimity and acceptance to the outside circumstances, which were the container for my practice. And the fact of the matter was, I was recovering from COVID for a really long time. I can't control that. And so I put this unreasonable expectation on my practice that I should be able to somehow barrel through in some way and just meditate while I was feeling crappy, like meditate while I was feeling sick, meditate while I was exhausted and couldn't keep my eyes open. So when we look and we check in with ourselves of what suits us, it's really helpful to first and foremost honor the outside circumstances. 
Like, how stressed are you at work? Are the kids running you ragged, right? Is, are you sick? Are you taking care of somebody right now who's sick? Noticing the outside circumstances that are the container for our dharma and giving ourselves a sense of check-in. Like, you know, normally I'm sitting this amount and I'm doing these practices and this is my routine. And then asking yourself, you know, things have changed. You've got this stressor in your life or you've got this time has changed and you don't have as much time because you're now serving a family member or something else has gotten busy on the back end of long list of things to do we do in adult life and giving ourselves this check-in to say hey what suits me right now because it really is easy to throw out these high aspirations for liberation which are wonderful and you know I'm a big fan of like looking at the end goal and celebrating and healthfully striving towards freedom from suffering and there has to be the acknowledge that sometime we have to pull back and really accept our limitations. And human beings have a hard time accepting our limitations. And spiritual practitioners as well can get into this sort of habit of constantly feeling like we have to push ourselves so hard towards enlightenment that we don't honor, first and foremost, the limitations of the present moment conditions that have arisen, which might be illness which might be the care of a loved one, which might be some kind of stress. When I was in uh, graduate school, I had had so many years of consistent practice and my ritual for practice, I was so attached to it. Every morning, hour in the morning, hour in the evening. Then graduate school came and I could not keep up the years of practice. I couldn't keep up the routine. And there was this transition where I was really averse to accepting that conditions in my life had changed and that I was going to have to adapt in a way and that the expectations I had put on myself for this time in my life were completely unreasonable to the circumstances. And so I had to go through this process of taking acceptance, which we normally see as an intuitive internal emotional response, like I'm going to emotionally gain some equanimity to anger or get some equanimity to some sensation that's arising and take some of that equanimity and see if it needs to be applied to outside circumstances. Do the outside circumstances suit the way I'm practicing in a way that's nourishing? Or is there a contrast or conflict? Or is there some abrasiveness there between the circumstance and how I would like to practice, which of course craving and aversion comes up there. So I think it's helpful when Gil says, know yourself, to both know the internal circumstances of how you're showing up and what the needs are, and then honoring the external circumstances as well as you're guiding your practice into this new year to be able to look at that. One of the things that Ruth, <laughs> Ruth said this quite a few times, Ruth used to say, the longer you meditate, the less you can get away with yourself. The longer you meditate, the less you can get away with yourself. And that's a wonderful, it's just such a wonderful, it is such a wonderful insight and truism for anyone who's meditated long enough uh, to see that come into being. And it is so true. And there's a shadow side to that as well, where this, we could start to be afraid that we're not practicing enough, or we're not practicing hard enough, or that we're not practicing with the discipline. And we just have to be loving and kind to ourselves and check in and ask ourselves, am I over-practicing or under-practicing? Because it could be either one. 
We could go too far and strain and practice too much, or we can get lazy. Why? Because the human mind and the human heart gets lazy, right? We all we all have a lazy self. <laughs> we know when that lazy self has arisen. We know what that feels like. We know when we've made a commitment and we're like, the lazy self wins, right? That has a certain feeling to it. And we back off our practice or we're gossiping and we kind of feel like it's not that good, but we do it anyway. Like we know when the lazy self takes the wheel and is driving for a while. Like we know what that feels like. And the, <laughs> the other day in this example, my healthy self won, but the example was this. So my roommate had a birthday and uh, my wife and I bought him a birthday cake and we asked him what kind of cake he wanted. And he said his favorite flavor of cake was Oreo cookie. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And I love Oreo cookies. And so we got him this cake. <laughs> and so the day after the celebration, I came home and I walked past the rest of the cake that was on the counter and I looked at it. And the committed self, the part that was showing up in the moment was like, it's nine o'clock at night. You don't need any cake. Like you don't need any cake right now. You had the celebration, you ate it. So my healthy self showed up, the committed self and the disciplined self showed up and started talking and I was like, oh great, yeah, yeah, this is good. And then like an hour later, I came down to check my laundry and I saw the cake a second time. And this time a different self came up. And this self had a completely different story and fabricated a different experience. This self that showed up said something like, I mean, it's a cake, it's for celebrating. Like, it's just a birthday. I mean, you should have some because it's still a celebration and just because it's, and so, and that started catching my eyes like, oh yeah, totally, that's right. And that's self started, started, ended up talking. And I caught myself as I turned to grab a plate in the cupboard to grab, I grabbed a plate and I was like, nope, I'm not gonna do this. My commitment is not to eat sugar at this late at night. And so that part of me won. So that's not always the case case in my house. But the reason I, I share that with you is that that happens even on the cushion, right? That happens even when we sit down to meditate. There's a part of you that shows up that's all gung-ho to sit and wants to do this practice or that practice. And then there's this other part that maybe isn't so gung-ho to practice. There's another part of you that maybe second guesses. I woke up, not this morning, but yesterday. I woke up yesterday and I had been sitting consistently. I was very happy. It's like starting the new year. Okay, every morning I get up and get my meditation in. And then I had that day where I woke up and was like, God, I don't want to sit right now. <laughs> and this first self, which was the committed self, showed up and said, oh, you have all these days in a row. Like, just go sit. Like, you're, you're good. Just sit. And then this other self came, became really strong and said, man, you've got so much to do today. I mean... Maybe you should just get to work and like sit later. Like you got all this stuff and you, I started thinking about checking my emails and that self was very convincing. Now the committed self won and I actually sat down, but it could have gone either way. Like both selves were kind of up and they're both kind of lit up, the energized and it could have gone. I could have just been like, oh, I'm going to go eat breakfast and go to work and I'll sit some other time. That kind of thing we check in with, right? We got to check in to see how we're showing up right in the effort part, the effort of practice how we're choosing what we're doing and how we're sitting. So I'm going to throw that out there as part of my add-on to Gil's suggestion that we balance this practice with watching the way the self shows up. One other thing that Gil says that I thought was really cool, he, he concludes his paragraph here by saying this, and I wanted to just throw this out here. He says, 
Since it's important not to tailor a meditation practice around personal preferences and attachments, it can be useful to ask a meditation teacher or another meditation practitioner for feedback about your approach to the practice. So after him saying you should check in with yourself, he's also saying, probably in the words in the Buddha, don't always first trust the se- the self that arises, right? You, you always want to make sure that you have a feedback loop somewhere because if you don't have some social feedback and how you're practicing, the self that you may not want to be guiding your practice might be the one that shows up quite frequently. So there's that shadow side to where you're checking in with yourself, you're seeing what kind of practice you're doing, you're looking at your outside circumstances and you're seeing what suits you and making sure that it's healthy and skillful and that you're not harming yourself and creating other layers of suffering in the process and you're checking in with the excuse making self and the lazy self and that self too to make sure you know which voice is speaking in your head at the time uh, that you're making your decision to practice. So in that spirit of that I wanted to just read down these questions that Gil asks us to consider when we're checking in with ourselves, pulling them out of the paragraph and just having them as a list of questions. And so if you have a pen, you can write these down. Um, but if not, you can just reflect on them and see what comes to your mind. I thought these were interesting questions. So Gil's first question is, right now in your life, what practice best suits you? Right now in your life, what practice best suits you? I thought that was interesting. I really had to think that one through. And then the second question that he asked, which I thought was also really interesting, was, do you know how to learn best? Do you know how to learn best? And of course, he gives the examples of the different sort of pathways to the Dharma, Dharma talks and retreats and books and things like that. What struck me about it, though, was asking myself, okay, do I know how to learn best? And are those things actually alive in my life right now? So when when I read that, my first thought was, well, how I really learn best is on retreat. And then I thought, man, I have not been on a retreat in a while because last year I didn't wasn't able to do it. And then I thought, oh, I should be looking ahead this year and saying, okay, if that's how I learn best, then I should probably look and see when that's going to happen and get that on my calendar. And so that's how I process this. The other thing I was looking at in myself when I was asking myself, how do I learn best? I thought to myself, well, I really like to read Dharma books. And lately I've been reading a lot of other things and I actually don't have like, other than all the tons on my shelf, I don't have one that I've picked out recently that I've been really like enlivened by something that was like, oh, this came out. I want to read this. One of the things I like about Gil's reflection is it reminds us to stay inspired to know what inspires us about the Dharma, to know how we like to learn, and to just check in. Hey, is that alive in my life? Is that on the agenda? Do I have a day long coming up that I'm interested in doing if that's what people like? Do I have a Dharma talk that I'm listening to or am I getting into a new teacher? It's just something to reflect on. I thought that was really interesting. Then his next one was, what kind of discipline or structure supports you? What kind of discipline or structure really supports you in practice? And is that alive in your life? And then he asks, is there enough playfulness, self-direction, or experimentation? 
I love this question about playfulness. Is there enough playfulness? That's a great question. I definitely say no for me. I need more playfulness in my practice. I always need more playfulness in my practice. I can get too rigorous with my practice. And I find when there's more playfulness and more experimentation that I have much more joy in the experience, for sure. I've, I've seen that directly in my own experience. And a kind of a correlative question might be, what does it look like for you to have some creativity, experimentation, and playful? Like, for you, what does that look like? Is that something that inspires you? Is that something that you do? What is that? Because it's going to be different for everyone. But I thought that was a really interesting reflection. And then the last two that are contrasted that I laughed earlier at was, are you an extrovert or an introvert, right? Do you find more aliveness in the private time on the cushion solo, or do you enjoy the community and the sangha and the collective sharing of practice? And I think probably a question in there as well might be, are they in balance? Are you having enough connectivity in community? Do you feel connected? to friends that are sitting in your spiritual community? Or, or and have you had time alone to practice? Have you had solo time to be to yourself and just sitting? And for some of us, one or the other really isn't that pleasing. But we might ask ourselves, when we decide whether we want more of an extroverted experience or more of an introverted experience, what self is showing up making that decision? Right When we feel kind of shy, maybe insecure, and maybe doubtful, does that self guide us towards community or does that guide us towards being more introverted? What kind of self, what kind of experience guides you or encourage you towards being more community connected or desiring for more time alone in solo practice? There's no right answer, of course. It's just an expression of, as we said, this evaluation of practice, this ability to self-reflect and kind of check in with ourselves. Like, what suits me? What suits me? All right, my friends, we're going to pause there. I'm making a commitment to ask what suits me for the next few weeks. Last year before I ended up getting COVID, I was I took several classes with Bhikkhu Analio and through his Satipatthana. He has a series of Satipatthana books. And uh, one of the books I had read several times was like one of my favorite Satipatthana books. And I saw he had a class, so I took a class on that, and that was really fun. And then he did a secondary class... Uh, on breath meditation and then I got sick with COVID kind of in the middle of it and I couldn't couldn't finish it but when I think to myself what suits me that was really enjoyable when I look back it's like oh yeah I really like that book and I like the way that Gil encourages us to kind of ask the question it's so funny if we don't ask the question sometimes we don't even think of it as something to reflect on right like if it doesn't come up as an inquiry it's not something that even crosses our minds oh we are right on time today wonderful Thanks so much for showing up week to week, my friends. I really appreciate it. Good to see you all. Uh, if you can stay for meta, we'll have a couple minutes of meta. We're right on time here. If not, blessings to you. Be well. Let's plop into presence and see who shows up. <laughs> or we can say, what heart-mind qualities arise in this moment? Let's take a couple moments to just do some intentional breathing. 
And with a gentle intention, see if you can find some pleasure in the in and out breath. That pleasure of the intake of breath energy, that relaxation on the exhale, finding pleasure in the presence of the breath. Let's take notice of the mood that has shown up in this moment. After 90 minutes of being in the Dharma together, what thoughts show up? What body sensations arise and pass away? What feelings are fluttering about? Noticing. And let us bring some awareness to the part of the body we call the heart. And let's take some intentional breaths, enlivening this heart on the inhale, filling it with breath energy. We might imagine some love, some kindness and compassion filling the body with each breath. Grounded in this tranquility and attuned to heart-centeredness. Let us wish well for all beings. And let us wish that all beings can share in the fruits of our practice. That as our hearts awaken, as we let go of craving, aversion, and delusion, as we let go of hatred and ill will, that the open, spacious heart that is left behind can be in the service to others. May all beings be free from suffering. Thank you, my friends, for sharing in the Dharma with me. Look forward to seeing you next week. Take care of yourselves and be well.
Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.